Well, good morning, everybody. It is so wonderful to see you here this morning. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and a special welcome to The Ascent, our youth ministry. Can we welcome the youth ministry here today? I appreciate them so much that I already put them to work. I asked Pastor Kevin to round up, round up some guys to go downstairs and bring up some more chairs. And so we're already putting them to, to work today. So we're so thankful for our youth ministry and just their, um, just their passion for the Lord. And so thank you, youth, for being part of our service. Uh, as you've already noticed, we have our baptism tank up here. And later on in our service, we're going to baptize two of our students Kate Lee. Can we hear for Kate? And Aaron Joe. Can we hear for Aaron? If you've given your life to Jesus and you've not yet been baptized, we invite you to also consider being baptized today. Even if you didn't bring a change of clothing or a towel, we have everything necessary for you in the foyer. And so during this message, if you feel that God's leading you, leading you to be baptized today, please consider that, and we'll give you that opportunity to join Aaron and Kate in being baptized. And as we share, baptism does not save a person. When you go into the water and when you come out, it's not that you are receiving salvation by going down and coming up. Being baptized is a public declaration of the faith that you have, that God has bestowed upon you, and that you are publicly declaring your faith in front of your church family. So that's the reason why we have baptism. And so if you'd like to be baptized today, consider that, and we'll give you an opportunity a little bit later on in our service. Would you bow with me? I want to go before the Lord and ask his blessing upon this time as we open his word. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Thank you for this series. And God, you know how much I've learned personally. Thank you, God, for those who teach through this gospel. Thank you for those who listen with attentive ears and, more importantly, open hearts. And I pray, God, that as we open your word today, that you would teach us, that you would transform us, that you would make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. In the world of sports, there's a certain term that's often used to describe certain athletes. Now, this term is the name of an animal. All right? And so take a look here at this animal. And this is the term that we often see used today to describe certain athletes. Now, it used to be, not too long ago, that if you were called a goat, that was a bad thing. Okay. So as a player, if you were a goat, that means you were to blame. Maybe you struck out, maybe you fumbled the ball, and so you were a goat, you were a scapegoat, and your teammates blamed you for the loss. But today, if you were the goat... It's a good thing. That means that you are the greatest of all time. Michael Jordan is still considered the GOAT of basketball. Serena Williams, the GOAT of women's tennis. Wayne Gretzky, the GOAT in hockey. Now, in order to be the GOAT in sports, that means that you have accumulated all kinds of accolades and awards, you hold records, 
maybe the most wins, the most runs, the most rings, the most trophies. Greatness in sports is defined by numbers. Greatness is defined by performance. That's how you're measured. And with greatness comes fame and fortune and everything else, popularity. Greatness in sports and in much of life is purely performance-based. Today, as we open God's Word, we'll see that the Bible talks much about greatness. And it talks about greatness in a very different way. The title of this morning's message is Greatness Redefined. Greatness Redefined. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. 30 to 50. And I'm going to say at the outset that this might well be the most challenging message you will hear. And one of the most challenging messages that I will share. Because the truths that are found in today's passage, in so many ways, they, they go against our human desires. The truths that we'll see in today's passage go against our human tendencies. And some might say they go against our human nature. That's why this might well be one of the most difficult messages that you will hear. And these truths, as we unfold this passage, they're going to cause us to look deep down inside and ask ourselves questions like, why do I do what I do? What's my intention for doing what I do in life, in my family, at work, here at church? Does my motivation match that of Jesus's? And that's why today's message might well be one of the most difficult messages to hear. Now, we're still in Act 2 of this three-act drama that Mark has laid out for us in his passage or in his gospel. Last week, if you tuned in, you might remember Peter, James, and John, they came down the mountain with Jesus after witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus, the glory of Jesus revealed on that mountaintop, they came down from the mountain, they were reunited with the other nine disciples who, while Peter, James, and John were up at the top of the mountain experiencing the glory of Jesus, the other nine were down below and they failed to cast out an evil spirit. And the reason why they failed to cast out this evil spirit who had been possessing this young boy was the very fact that the nine disciples, they bypassed the most important step. And that was prayer. They relied on their own abilities. They relied on themselves. And they didn't go to God in prayer. And as a result, they were unable to cast out this evil spirit. You know, in the Christian life, we talk so much about being like Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus. Lord, help me to be more like Jesus. Well, guess what? Being more like Jesus may well start with learning to pray like Jesus. If you want to be more like Jesus, 
the starting point just may well be learning to pray like Jesus. Jesus often went off to a mountaintop. He went out to a garden to be with his father. And here's, here's an absolute truth. The more we pray, the less we have time to depend on ourselves. The more we pray, the less we are self-reliant. Look at it this way. If there are 24 hours in a day, and let's just say, not that you're going to do this, but let's just say you prayed 12 of those 24 hours. That means you have half a day that you're not thinking about yourself, hopefully, that you are focused on God. And so that's the backdrop now to our passage for today. The disciples and Jesus, they start walking from the bottom of that mountain, and they're walking through Galilee. So I invite you to turn now to Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick it up starting in verse 30. I'll read to you verses 30 to 32. Mark chapter 9. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying. However, they were afraid to ask him what he meant. So here in this passage, we see Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. And what we want to know is this. In Act 2, which is chapters 8b to 10, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection three separate times. He does so in chapter 8. He'll do so again in chapter 10. And he does so right here in chapter 9. And if you've been with us for much of this series, you know that in Act 2, a certain question is being asked. Now, you might be visiting for the first time today. We welcome you to our church. Now, I'm going to give you a brief recap. In Act 1 of the Gospel of Mark, that's chapters 1 through 8a. And in Act 1, a certain question is asked by certain people. The crowds witness Jesus performing all these miracles, all these healings, he's casting out demons, and the crowds, they marvel and they ask, who is this Jesus? That's Act 1. In Act 2, chapters 8b to 10, a whole different question is being asked by a whole different group of people. Who's asking the question in Act 2? Anybody? The disciples. And they're not asking, wow, who is this Jesus? They're asking, hmm, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? They're asking that question because Jesus keeps talking about his death. And they ask that question because it dawns on them. If we're following him, what does that mean for our own lives? You see, the disciples, much like the crowds, they were expecting their leader, 
their king to come in the form of a political leader who would lead a revolt against the oppressive government. And in this act, they're realizing, wow, he's not who we thought he was. Their leader kept talking about his death. What leader keeps talking about his death? And the disciples, they would eventually learn the hard way. And so we're going to continue on in verse 33. After they arrived in Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. So I want you to picture this scene. Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through Galilee on this dirt road. And Jesus reminds them that he's going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but then three days later he will rise from the dead. His disciples they didn't like it. Every time Jesus talked about his own death, they said, this is silly talk. It's nonsense. What does he mean by that? But they were too afraid to ask him. So they're just walking along the road, and they just dismiss it. Oh, he doesn't know what he's saying. Just, just ignore it. So the disciples, they're just walking and having their own conversation. So just picture now, Jesus is walking through Galilee. His 12 disciples are behind him, maybe 10, 20 yards, and they are in a heated debate, and they're arguing about which of them is the greatest of the disciples. Now, it was not just a casual conversation because it tells us here that Jesus sat them down and said, what were you arguing about. And at that moment, guess what happened? Silence. Have you ever been caught? You just kind of hang your head in shame. So Jesus asked, what were you arguing about? Now, I find that kind of funny because he knew what they were arguing about. It's not like he didn't know. They got caught. So they just lowered their heads. They were embarrassed. Did you know that the disciples were often in an argumentative mood? Earlier, they argued about which of them forgot the loaves of bread. Earlier, they argued with the teachers of the law after the nine disciples couldn't cast out the demon. Later in this passage, they'll be arguing with somebody else. And here they're arguing amongst themselves. But let's just stop and consider what they're arguing about. They're arguing about who amongst them is the greatest disciple. Now, it's one thing if you were a sports fan and you're arguing about your favorite player. Hey, so-and-so is the best. He's the GOAT. 
And then your friend says, no, 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 no. My guy is the GOAT. And today, in sports forums, you see people arguing all the time. But this is a whole different matter. The disciples are arguing and defending themselves. And I got to imagine this. Peter, James, and John, I guarantee it. They were thinking, well, we have to be in the top three at least. Come on, at the very least, we're in the top three because the other nine, they were not on that mountaintop. They didn't see Jesus being transformed before our eyes. So they were saying, yes, yes, we're top three. And then even within the top three, I have to imagine James and John, brothers, they're probably arguing, uh, which is the greater brother? Sibling rivalries have been known to exist. Not in your household, right? Not in your household. But I've heard about sibling rivalries. It's remarkable to think that the 12 disciples were arguing about who's the greatest while their Messiah is marching to his death. Follow along as I read these words from one commentator. He says this. The picture Mark presents has tragic comic dimensions. Jesus walks ahead in silence on his way to his own sacrificial death while his straggling disciples push and shove trying to establish the order of the procession behind him. This had to have broken Jesus' heart. And so he sits them down and he says to them, whoever wants to be first must take last place. Whoever wants to be first must be ready to serve everyone else. Way back at the beginning of our series, I gave you a takeaway from the Gospel of Mark. It's been a while since I reminded you of that takeaway statement, so this is a perfect time. The takeaway from the Gospel of Mark is this. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. Whoever wants to be first must take back seat, must take last place. Whoever wants to be first must be ready and eager to serve everybody else. That's the paradox of the kingdom. Greatness is redefined in the kingdom of God. And to illustrate his point, Jesus finds a little child and positions the little child in front of the disciples. Look at verse 36. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. I've got a question for you. Why does Jesus bring a child into this picture? 
Think about that question. Why does Jesus bring a child into the picture? Here's a hint. It's not to show the disciples that they were acting childishly. Now, it's true they were immature, but that's not the reason why Jesus brings this child in front of them. You might recall, previously, Jesus sent his disciples out on a mission, two by two. And he told them, when you go out, don't take any food, don't take any bags, don't take any money. Only take the shirt on your back. And by doing so, when they went out on their mission, what they were saying was, we are going to be utterly dependent on God. We're going to be utterly dependent on the people God brings our way who will take us in, who will feed us, who will provide shelter for us. And here's the thing. When we are utterly dependent on someone else, it keeps us humble, doesn't it? When we are dependent on someone else, it keeps us humble. Jesus brought this child in front of the disciples to show them that this child represented someone who had no status, no power, no significance. Now, in other cases in Scripture, a child is used to convey a sense of innocence, purity, childlike faith. This wasn't that case at all. When Jesus brought this child and stood the child in front of the disciples, what we want to know is in that culture, a child was looked down upon. A child was lowly, a child was dirty, a child was insignificant. And so Jesus was teaching his disciples, and he's teaching us today, that true greatness in the kingdom of God is not about building up ourselves. It's about serving others, like the Savior. Serving those without status, without power, without significance. I said a few minutes ago that this might be one of the most challenging messages that you'll hear. Because the truths that are found in this passage, they go against our human tendencies. And this passage, it, it challenges us to remind ourselves every single day and multiple times a day that, ready? It's not about me. It's not about me. It is not about the self. And that flies in the face of much of what we hear today. Look out for number one. Take care of number one. And here, Jesus says, greatness is defined by how we serve others who cannot serve themselves. It's not about me. It's not about the self. And I want you to keep that phrase in mind. It's not about me as we read the very next verse. Look at verse 38. John said to Jesus, Teacher, 
We saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. So the very next verse, John says, Teacher, this outsider was casting out demons in your name. So we said, Stop. It tells us that the disciples didn't learn the lesson of this child. Let's, let's probe into their complaint here. Think about this. What was the complaint of the disciples? It wasn't that the other person was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. That wasn't the complaint. The complaint was this. That person was an outsider. He didn't belong to their group. And in this instance, the disciples were more concerned about their own reputation than they were about the success of the mission. Remarkable. They were more concerned about their own reputation. And the irony of this complaint is the disciples had just failed to cast out a demon, right? From a young boy. And here is someone on the outside who is doing what they couldn't do. In ministry, it's so easy, so easy to become territorial. You know the word territorial? It's a very uh, vivid, descriptive word. The dictionary defines territorial as relating to the ownership of an area of land or sea. Territorial as relating to the ownership of an area of land or sea. And the operative word is ownership. That's why countries have territorial disputes. They fight over islands. In ministry, it's so easy to become territorial. You know, churches are often territorial, and churches often have territorial disputes with one another. And even within the same church, members of the same church often find themselves having territorial disputes amongst each other. And conflicts arise in a church when members of a church forget who the owner is. I have a newsflash for all of you. None of us owns this church. God owns this church. You and I we are only stewards for a time. Now, God willing, we'll be stewards for a long time. But you and I are only stewards of our church. We don't own this church. 
That's why, as stewards, that's why a phrase like this should not be part of our vocabulary. A phrase like, well, we've never done it that way before, should not be part of our vocabulary. That's why a phrase like, this is no longer the church I first joined way back when. I don't recognize it anymore. Ought never to enter our minds or exit our lips. You see, the church must be like Christ. And if we act like those outside the church, having territorial disputes, that'll ruin our testimony immediately. You know, it's so tempting within the church to, uh, to be possessive, right? In a church, people, if one ministry, they might think, oh, this is my ministry. You've got your ministry. You take care of your ministry. I'll take care of my ministry, and we'll just coexist. Don't bother me. I won't bother you. Territorial disputes have no place in the church because, for this very reason, we all affect one another. And what that means is this. Our presence or our absence amongst the body of Christ, it affects, it impacts everybody else. There's a trickle-down effect. That's why Jesus continues on in verse 42. He says this, but if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. So here, and Jesus, he emphasizes the serious nature of discipleship. And he says, if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, and then he follows that up with some pretty uh, graphic words. Now, I just want you to know, what we just read is hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? It's exaggeration. Jesus is not saying literally alter your physical body. That's not what he is saying. What he's saying is that discipleship is so serious that we must have a self-sacrificial attitude toward it. In other words, discipleship is not all about me, the individual. 
Discipleship is all about following the master and modeling him to others. It's not about the self. And that is why in ministry, you know, we talk every so often about spiritual gifts. Every follower of Jesus Christ has been given certain spiritual gifts and talents. Did you know that it is so tempting and it is dangerous and it's easy for followers of Jesus to use their talents and gifts ultimately to build themselves up. And that is tempting. That's why we have to remind ourselves whenever we preach the word of God, whenever we sing a song, whenever we serve on the patio, whenever we minister in our groups, those around us, what they must see is this. They must see God at work through us. If, if the person out there only sees the individual, then that individual gets all the glory that is reserved for God. You know, sometimes leaders in the church fall victim to this mentality. They say, well, I didn't come up with that idea, or if I can't have control over the outcome of that idea or that event, then I'm not going to support it, endorse it, or participate in it. And, and that happens far more often than you might think. You know, one of the signs of spiritual maturity as we grow in our faith is the willingness to open our hands wider and our arms wider. The opposite of opening our hands and arms wider is closing our fists. So I want you to picture this. When you close your fists, you take on a certain position. You know, have you ever heard the term tight-fisted? Tight-fisted is a very visual word, and every word that's associated with tight-fisted is a negative one. Stingy, narrow, me against the world. So here's what happens. When we're tight-fisted, it naturally puts us in this position, in a fighting position. You can't help it. When we open our hands and arms, here's what happens. We open ourselves up to other ideas, other suggestions, and other people. We don't have to be the architect of every idea. Sometimes in ministry, an individual becomes bigger than the ministry, and that's dangerous. When an individual becomes bigger than the ministry, that is a dangerous thing. True greatness is not found in making a name for ourselves. True greatness is found in serving others, like the Savior, 
And Jesus concludes this section with the final words in verses 49 and 50. He says this, For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how will you make it, or how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. Salt is yummy, isn't it? I like salt. Salt makes popcorn taste good. Salt makes eggs taste really good. And salt makes french fries taste fantastic. (laughs) So salt is good. Salt is an essential seasoning. Salt is also an important preservative. And also, salt in the Old Testament, it was an important purifying agent in sacrifices. Salt has such great significance. Today, a common phrase around the dinner table is this. Pass the salt, please. Can you pass the salt? When people share meals together, they're at peace with each other. It's miserable when you have to have a meal with somebody that you're at odds with, right? That's miserable. It makes for a very awkward meal. We like to have meals with people we like, that we can laugh with and just be ourselves with, and we just love sharing a meal with people we like. Jesus said to his disciples, you must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace. You see, this whole discourse is started with the disciples arguing over who amongst them was the greatest. It continued with them arguing with an outsider who was using Jesus' name to cast out demons. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, have the qualities of salt. And, and here's the message we want to drive home. To have the quality of salt is to be distinctive. It's to be distinctive. And Jesus called his disciples then, and he calls us now to be distinctive. And we'll drive it home even further. In the context of this passage, what he means is this. When we are distinctive, we serve others, and we place their needs above our own needs especially the needs of those who have no status, power, or significance. That's the message here. To be distinctive is to serve others. You see, because back then, it was everybody for themselves. Look out for number one. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, You need to be great in just the opposite way. When the natural tendency is to look out for our own self-interest and for our own group's self-interest, Jesus redefines greatness. And he says, if you want to be great, go to the back of the line. If you want to be great, go to the back of the line.
And I'm going to close by saying this. That's easier said than done. Because in my own life, it is so hard. It is so hard. Because we want recognition. We want people to treat us fairly. We want people to give us credit. The human tendency says, hey, look at me. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. That's why this is the hardest message you will hear. Jesus isn't saying give up certain things. He's saying give up yourself entirely. Disavow yourself and give yourself to me and see what I can do in your life. That's greatness redefined. And I'll close with this. What that does mean is this. That sometime in the future, in this lifetime, that we might be rewarded. Because it's very likely that for the rest of our lives, we may not receive another reward for being great the way Jesus calls us to be great. But if we go to our grave denying ourselves and serving others, our rewards await us in eternity. That's the message here. Would you bow with me? Father, I confess to you that it is so hard because my human desire is to be selfish. I want my time. I want my recognition. I want people to treat me fairly. I wish people didn't disappoint me. That's the reality, God. And yet time and time again, your word tells us true greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. It's hard. But Lord, help us to do just that. And, and right now I pray, just even for myself, everyone else here is just listening to my prayer for myself. Um, Lord, even this afternoon, you're going to give me and everyone here opportunities to serve and to get to the back of the line and to serve others like you served us. And so, God, I just, um, I just pray that you would convict my heart, that you would change me, that you'd make me more like Jesus this week. That's my desire. That's my prayer. I pray these things in his name. Amen.